Eileen Serlin, welcome to the new school. Thanks so much, Michael. I'm just delighted to be here. Eileen, you are a psychologist and a dance and movement therapist in San Francisco and Marin County. You are the past president of the San Francisco Psychological Association, a past president of the Division of Humanistic Psychology. Uh, you taught at Saybrook, uh, at Leslie University, UCLA, the New York Gestalt Institute, and the Jung Institute in Zurich. You've edited Whole Person Healthcare. Uh, you are on the editorial boards of Psych Critique, American Dance Therapy Journal, Journal of Humanistic Psychology, Arts and Health, uh, and the Journal of Applied Arts and Health and the Humanistic Psychologist. And um, you've done uh, a, a remarkable body of uh, work in this uh, field of um, dance therapy, psychotherapy, expressive arts. Uh, you've uh, written dozens and dozens of really interesting articles and chapters in different books and periodicals. Um, and I was saying to you over lunch before we began that one might expect you to be deeply versed in your field uh, of dance therapy and the expressive arts. But what's really fascinating is that you have a, a broader uh, frame of reference. Um, you um, quote the great French philosopher Merleau-Ponty. Merleau you quote the great uh, uh, philosopher Suzanne Langer. Uh, you, uh, you have a, a frame of reference that is broader uh, than the field of um, dance and movement therapy and psychology. So I guess I would start by asking you, um, how did you come to this deeper context from which you, uh, you do your dance movement and psychotherapy work? Oh, dear, I don't know how to answer that, Michael. Well, good. That's a great start. I like to start with questions that people don't know how to answer. It's too big. Because they have to figure it out. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, as I said to you over lunch, uh, if, as soon as I'm in a box, I'm restless, and I want to get out of that box, and I ask, well, yeah. what else is there? So I've, I've, I've hopped from box to box. Mm -hmm. Some of it is, and as I also said on, during lunch, um, like so many of us, I've been a seeker my whole life. And as I unravel threads of, first of all, as a dance therapist, it's such a strange field. Mm -hmm. And I was in at the very beginning and the first master's program. At when did it my, begin, roughly? Well, the association was founded in 66, I think, mm -hmm. 1966. But of the, then there were creative arts therapies. So either music or art is the oldest and um, dance therapy is the youngest. There's psychodrama, there's drama therapy. It's very, it's very confusing because on the East Coast where I was trained, there were creative arts therapies. Here it's expressive therapy, which is multimodal, and there's schools of expressive therapy too. And each has its, its own association and its main theorists and so forth. So I was trained in what was called the old school of dance therapy. So that was the lineage of that was, um, on, and even that there's different traditions. Um, Marion Chase was a dancer in the 40s uh, who worked in, um, in Washington, mostly at St. Elizabeth's Hospital. When Ezra Pound was there? 
I don't know. Yeah. I do not know yeah. Yeah. if he danced. I know. Yeah. Um, she was a... Uh, um, I'm forgetting the name the, uh, from the, the company she used to dance with. Mm-hmm. But um, rumor had it that a lot of psychiatrists were saying um, who... Oh, first she had her own studio. Who, uh, something magical happened to me in this woman's studio. So she got invited to uh, work at Chestnut Lodge, mm-hmm. where Harry Stack Sullivan was. Mm-hmm. The joke is... Harry Stack Sullivan being a great psychiatrist who was a sort of a neo-Freudian, but out of... Uh, Emphasize interpersonal. Interpersonal stuff. And stuff, so right. in those days, a lot of what they called schizophrenic patients were, were actually, were very isolated, often chained mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. And so the big emphasis was on interaction. Mm-hmm. And um, she grew out of an I'm a folk dancer. So that rhythm of, you know, you all know square dances and folk dances are great community building, interactive kinds of movements. And that, so her tradition was really what in the West Coast they call the eyes open approach. Because mm-hmm. the West Coast schools of dance therapy mostly come from um, authentic movement. Mm-hmm. Um, who's, and she studied with... Um, Young, mm-hmm. and it's kind of eyes closed. Mm-hmm. So you wait for the authentic impulse. It's much more introspective. It's quieter. Mm-hmm. So the West Coast is more eyes closed. Eyes closed. East Coast, East Coast is, eyes is open. more eyes open and more socially on the earth right, and so right. forth. Um, kind of a metaphor for the cultural difference. Mary Whitehouse, that's right. And of course, I've got a foot in both. Mm-hmm. So, but I was trained. Um, um, Marion Chase's students formed the Dance Therapy Association, so I was kind of the second generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was an NIMH grant at Hunter College. But I told you I was out here dancing with Anna Halpern, and we were doing these outrageously wonderful things on mountaintops, and then this New York self said, so what's real about that? Mm-hmm. And all these people are suffering in hospitals and need help, and how do we translate this to... And just to keep our... our our listeners engaged um, briefly describe who Anna Halpern is. Ah, uh, we're sort of talking about dance therapy. Anna Halpern was actually one of my mentors. Um, Anna, who's still going strong at age 94, I think, mm-hmm. out here on the West Coast, mm-hmm. and I came out to study with her in 1969, was a pioneer in modern dance yeah. and very innovative and was doing outrageous things like nude dancing and street theater dancing out here, um, very environmentally um, sensitive dances, working in nature, a lot of interesting things about growing old and the working with the aging body is still beautiful. And lived through her own cancer diagnosis. She describes that the way she, as you know probably, is that she, uh, her method, which I do very related kinds of things, is you draw, you you move and you draw. And in a sense, you're you're speaking to unconscious parts of the self. And that as she drew, there was a black spot in her drawing. And many of the doctors would say, I don't know if they said to her, but that's been my experience with running cancer groups. Oh, no, it's nothing. You don't have any, you know, don't. And she kind of insisted, and she, she had cancer. So her stories that she discovered and therefore caught early her own cancer and worked through it. And, that, and she, she was one of the early ones to start cancer support groups with movement. She did that at Marin General. And, and you know, just, just as a historical fact, yeah. uh, we um, held two pioneering conferences at Commonweal 
22 years ago on Art as a Healing Force. And at both of those, Anna Halpern came and led these large movement sessions in the gallery upstairs. Uh, and Anna Halpern also, just as a historic uh, fact, uh, was key to the uh, spiritual healing of Jennifer Altman, who mm. came on the Cancer Help Program and looked like she was going to die within months. And... Uh, asked if she could stay and volunteer at Commonweal and got involved with Anna Halpern's work and lived about another four years. Mm. And Anna's work transformed Jennifer. And I mentioned Jennifer because she left the Jennifer Altman Foundation, which has supported Commonweal's work and then done a tremendous amount of useful work mm. in the field of environmental health and integrative health. So there's a lineage of Anna Halpern's work that is alive in this building because uh, Jennifer Altman felt so deeply healed by working with Anna. Yeah. Right. So in any case, uh, you uh, did this work at NIMH. Uh, you, uh, uh, you worked with Anna Halpern. I interrupted you at that point to ask about who Anna was and you talk about the similarities of your own work. So how did your work evolve from that point forward? Uh, it's interesting. I was just thinking about similarities and differences. I went from Anna back to the East Coast, saying I have this East Coast more mm -hmm. uh, scientific or show me evidence based mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. mentality mm -hmm. about, and wanting to work with people in hospitals and everyday people. And um, so I did actually an internship at Bronx State Hospital, mm -hmm. which is about as far away from Mount Tamil Pius as mm -hmm. you can get. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's Bronx State Hospital. I was born in the Bronx. But it's it's. Um, I, you know, this is going to sound very silly. It is about finding the divine in the worst possible. And mm -hmm. I have some stories about that, about transforming any environment into something magical. And literally, we used to do serpentine lines around the nurse's station. Mm -hmm. We'd get a drum and people would follow us. We'd make a circle or you'd go into the day room and typical... People are spaced out, staring at walls, rocking in different rhythms all over the place. And Marion Chase used to do this. She was a magician. Just about transforming the, in the energy in the room. Stories about her. She'd sort of float into the room, turn on the record player in those days, mm -hmm. and keep floating, and get some music kind of weaving, and then begin to kind of invite this person and invite that person. And pretty soon you began to gather into a circle. And pretty soon the circle began to move into the center and back. So you had a focus, and you had a sacred space, you had a periphery. And then interaction started happening in the focus, and people started making eye contact and exchanging and so forth. So um, to, to be able to do that in the most sort of fragmented settings and in back staircases and things to create that kind of connection to me was I'll tell a quick story about that I was on the back ward with my supervisor Mimi and um, because it was the same time that Oliver Sacks was working up oh, in really? Kings County mm -hmm. Hospital in the mm -hmm. Bronx we were sort of neighboring mm -hmm. hospitals mm -hmm. and he tells that story in a way Oliver Sacks being the famous neurologist who's done all the wonderful books on the man who thought his wife was, was a, a hat, hat and that kind and of so stuff. Forth. Just yeah. He gave patients a certain medication and they kind of came alive for a while. It was very strange because then they went back and right, exactly. what they'd been. Yeah. 
we were sitting in a, we were, the patients were sitting in a circle in the day room and we were practicing taking over part of the sessions and, and I used to do this in nursing homes too. Props are fairly important, starting with a, just a ball and you'd throw it to somebody and say, good morning, so and so. And even if they're spaced out, something responds to a very concrete, just toss a ball or a balloon and they say, good morning. There was a man in that room who hadn't spoken in 30 years in that group, which was not unusual in the back wards of the hospitals. This happened to be very light, but it was a basketball. And when we threw it to him, and I watched this, he took it and he said, my name is so-and-so and I haven't spoken in 30 years and I had a nervous breakdown in college and in those days they put me into this hospital and I decided to not speak. And that was it. The, I mean, think talking about Proust, but the memory of the, of the basketball, the mobilization of everything. So the, the coming together of image, sensation, cognition, all of that in that moment. So what happened to him? Awakened him. I left my internship, I don't know, followed up. I mm. didn't follow up. But I, I had that experience over and over, those awakenings mm. that were so magical. Um, I, that I entered the field. Mm -hmm. So, um, and so you said you said in our conversation earlier that you'd find yourself in psychology classes, and you'd be looking outside at the sunlight or whatever, and thinking, "Why is it that I feel so much more alive when I'm out there moving, and I'm learning so much more when I'm moving?" Than I, when I'm sitting in these classes. And, and also, you have this wonderful narrative, certainly not yours alone, but you're exquisitely uh, uh, eloquent about it, about how in the West uh, we have uh, the verbal, we have the word, we have the verbal text, we have the Torah, we have the Bible, we have the Quran, mm -hmm. and that there is a verbal narrative, and that, as you say, the using the story for narrative has become an integral part of medicine, mm -hmm. but that there is this whole nonverbal intuitive dimension of our beings, which also has a narrative, which is not verbal, and yet by the use of dance and movement, one can discover uh, the nonverbal narrative of the body mm -hmm. that itself has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and sure. forms uh, if you uh, give it the space to do that. Exactly. Right. I did think of a couple more stories about nonverbal Tell us another stories one. if you want. Sure. Um, well, for me, story is, because we were talking about Hillman and Ed Casey and so forth. That's so story James Hillman image. being the great uh, archetypal psychologist, founder of archetypal Who psychology. Who was my teacher in 1978 right. to 81 right. in Dallas. An image for him, but this is part of another philosophical tradition. I was reading about Corbin, as mm -hmm. Henri Corbin is mm -hmm. in your, um, some of the mystics who talk about the third way. So an image is not the painting, and it's not the reflection and the cones and rods of the eye. The image lives between. It's always in the third. It's, it's how we take up the painting. We bring our own associations. We bring our own value systems. We like it. We don't like it. We respond to it in our bodies. It's comforting. It's not comforting. And the image is the whole thing. So when we think of an image as two-dimensional painting, or a lot of people I know were turned off to dance because we had those early experiences of Beatrice 
and we thought, even you know, at age mm-hmm. eight or four, how silly that was. Mm-hmm. Well, to be a tree, you know, it, representational. It's kind of cartoon-like, you know. But then there's images in the body, like fear or like longing or all kinds of images. Some that have words, some that we can only sense um, compatible compatibility. Um, some that get unpacked through over time, like a story. So my dissertation was on kinesthetic imagining. Some call it fuzzy felt because it's not a picture of an image. But if we watch a dance company, we can recognize aggression, we can recognize fear, we can recognize all kinds of things or a story over time, a heroic journey, we can recognize all kinds of things in the body. Um, but So we see this every day and how to... How to uh, so I had a kind of a funny story because I, I, I promised you I'd think about end-of-life stories. Yes. So I worked in nursing homes also for three years, and that's quite um, eye-opening and terrifying in America. And these in Massachusetts were in receivership, so they were in very bad shape. The state had to come in and um, mm-hmm. try to bring them up to, so they wouldn't be closed up to. And um, one man, th- this one happened to be a wealthy nursing home in, um, in New England, in, Mass- in, the Mass- in, in Cape Cod, and I call it ducks and geese on the wall, the kind of a nursing home, and very proper in a way. And here's this man who had been living on the streets. He was alcoholic. He had his legs amputated from frostbite, but his daughter worked, was a nurse, and somehow pulled strings and got him in here. And they were all complete. They brought me in to fix him because he was pinching the nurses and being obstreperous, and I was supposed to get him to behave. And, and then you have to think about it from the nurse's point of view. They're overworked, they're stressed, they, and, they don't, and they begin to see people as problems. Another bell ringing, another demand on their time, another. And if people are behaved or medicated or whatever it is, it's easier for everybody. It's less stress for them. So what am I going to do with this man? And... Um, he started to tell me a story, and I noticed that I forgot whether he wrote or I wrote, but I had a yellow legal pad, and I would write down everything he said. Oh, I gave him pieces of paper, and he, no, I wrote, I wrote down everything he said. And then he'd start coming weekly to the sessions, and I had this feeling, I kept this pad in a folder, and I sat it on the desk between us, and he saw that I was keeping track, and then every week would be a new part of the series. So fascinating. He was Irish and he knew all the politicians and all this stuff. And he, he, it was life review because he felt like he was a failure. But actually he'd been a good father. And as he reviewed his life, he saw some good things about it. But the important part was the symbolic, nonverbal part. I was keeping this package very carefully. And then he began coming to the session. He owned one suit. He'd start dressing up in a suit to these sessions and he had this whole other charming gentlemanly storytelling side to himself and he would look and he would call me his doctor he had an appointment weekly with his doctor and the the um pile was getting thicker and so forth and the nurses were all saying to me what are you doing to him and I I said, I'm just asking him to tell a story but it wasn't just the telling of the story it was mostly the the care with which I kept everything and the respect he got 
And also because nobody else, especially, you know, in overworked nursing, had time to really listen to these stories. Sounds like he was falling in love with you. <laughs> he was very charming, I must <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, love yeah. is a healing force. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and if I was to see him as something other than a problem. Mm -hmm. yeah. so he was yeah. definitely a flirtatious. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that was just one story about how story is not just mm -hmm. words. Mm -hmm. An image is not just a picture. But mm -hmm. they're living groups of mm -hmm. experience and feeling and perception and cognition mm -hmm. and whatnot. Now, in the expressive work that you talk about, uh, in other words, there are different categories, right? There are the expressive arts, right? Uh, and uh, broadly speaking, is it fair to say, I think I heard you say, that the different expressive arts in their modern form essentially emerged from the 60s for the most part? Is that correct or not correct? Or did it emerge before the 60s? Well, first of all, in, in that I mean, there article, are ancient dimensions. Very ancient. I'm talking right? about the, uh, the modern, what we think about. about as professional organizations yeah. and so forth. Did they, I mean, did they start before the 60s? Before or? the 60s. Again, uh -huh. I'm trying to remember. Now, music therapy, and this is back right. to Oliver that Sacks, was one of the earliest after ones. World War II. Right. And this is where I use movement and, mm -hmm. and, and music for working with war traumas right. that work in Israel mm -hmm. that I wrote about. Mm -hmm. um, these were shell-shocked, they called them in those days, shell-shocked shoulders. Say that ten times. Shell-shocked shell 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 soldiers. Shell-shocked shell soldiers who um, didn't speak. Mm -hmm. Well, try sitting down to do verbal therapy right. with a shell-shocked shoulder who can't speak. Mm -hmm. um, so music, um, and this often happens with dance therapy, they give you the patients nobody else can work with, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's kind of the end of the line, you know. Um, and so that's when music therapy really got a hold. And the VA hospital, I think, even supported it then because they mm. could work with people nobody else could. So that's kind of post-World War II was when music mm. therapy got a hold. Mm -hmm. Art therapy is also much older. And mm. dance therapy, as I said, was founded in 66. Okay. Um, later. And so then you do a beautiful job in, in some of your articles in, in tracing this back, uh, this wonderful article from the American Journal of Dance Therapy, uh, 1993 called Root Images of Healing and Dance Therapy in which you uh, you talk about dance as sacred uh, and you talk about uh, you know you trace that back all the way dance is an altered state dance is shamanistic practice um, and uh, just taking the contemporary um dimensions of dance therapy and really going back, uh, uh, as you say, originally there seems not to have been a split between sacred and profane movement. Once dance expressed the human relationship to creation and the gods, it was already mythological. Yeah. So talk a little bit about these, uh, I mean I've summarized them just briefly, but uh, Say a little more about what these root images of healing and dance therapy in their ancient uh, form uh, really were about. Sure. Thanks, Michael. Um, I'll just share with the group a tiny bit of what I shared with Michael and then I'll talk, which is I've, I've been looking through my own, why I got this 
crazy profession of dance mm-hmm. therapy. It's nothing anybody would choose. You don't make any money. Mm-hmm. You always struggle. You're the lowest on the totem pole in any hospital or whatever you work in because you're a combination of the arts, which is already low, a woman, mm-hmm. and doing something embodied. So forget about mm-hmm. it. So why would anybody want to be a dancer? So I had this drive somehow to do that and to study the power of what it was and document it and explain it and so forth and still do. Um, and found in my own family that we come from Hasidic roots, so trying to find where the spiritual and the sacred was. And of course, we all lost that coming to this country, but went back to the village in Russia. And when you move, move by the spirit is when you sing and dance in that tradition. And like many of us, I got very involved in Buddhism and so forth. And I love it. It's extremely important, but I can't sit that long. And when I'm moved by the spirit, I want to move. So, so trying to understand, really, it came out of a very personal desire to understand how this is both mind, body, and spirit, this whole dance thing that I somehow inherited. Um, just reading about early dance. So um, a lot. So I, I came as a folk dancer starting at age 14, went to Israel, and, and really knew the early pioneers of Israel. It's another story. But I met with the dance ethnographers at the Hebrew University who, when they created a state, they knew that they needed a culture. So a lot of the early Israeli songs and dances from 1948 were created then and there, which I didn't know. But they come from centuries-old dances and so forth, like the hora, which we do at every bar mitzvah or wedding. Um, first of all, it's um, I think the yeah the, the so it's in front, behind, in front behind. So when you're weaving, and these are all folk dances have this, you're making a grapevine step, it's called the grapevine, and that these are all bio-organic images in the dance, and that a lot of this is comes from planting seeds in the earth. And then much later I talked about Laba notation, who talks about organic archetypes, scattering seeds and gathering ski seeds. So they come from farming, Later on, another one, a lot of um, Hungarian folk dances are from horse's hoofs. And, and you wear little boots and you simulate the horse thing. And that a lot of the dances we were doing in Israel were picking grapes, from, picking grapes, putting them in, your, in the bag like this. And if you look at Israeli folk dance, so I was part of a Zionist youth group and we did a lot of folk dancing and singing. It brings people together and I was... I was, mo- I, was, I was mobilized in, uh, in Israel when I went there, and a nice Jewish girl from the suburbs, you go there on a Friday, I'd never seen anything like this Friday night, everybody dresses in white, they make a bonfire and dance and sing for hours and hours around the bonfire, uh, you wash up, you put on your best white clothes, and it was Fantastic. So I came back and I was very involved in this youth group for a long time. We were going to build the perfect democracy and of course all that's changed. But, but, um, but how music and dance, was, they knew, had to be part of creating a pioneer spirit. It wasn't just words. So, um, so if you look at all those dances, trying to track where some of them come from, a lot of them are in common across all cultures. So on one level, you can look at things like, um, like the circle as an archetypal form, or obviously the spiral, which, and then in Laba notation, the spiral cuts through all the dimensions. We were talking about the vertical, the horizontal, the sagittal, the door plane. 
a spiral, if you spiral up, down to the floor and spiral up, it's healing because it actually takes you through all the dimensions. In Laba notation, I'll talk about it later, but it's a language system. The vertical is connected to I am. The width is connected to I am here. The horizontal is connected to giving and taking and sharing. Communication happens in this dimension. So each dimension is associated with qualities, expressions. And then within the dimensions, you have time, weight, space, and flow. You've got quickness. So all those form our signature. They also form patterns. So you have a circle. And I still, I did it in folk dance. And it was many years later through dance therapy. And you asked why dance therapy wasn't enough. I had to study Jungian and work mm -hmm. with James Hillman. I finally begin to understand now why a circle is so powerful. Mostly because I have different language. For, but I've traveled a lot through the Balkans, little villages where you get, it's just the most fantastic thing. You know, you get everybody together in the village. And for example, if I go to Greece, which I used to do, uh, as a woman or as a visitor, I'd never go to the head of a line. You know, it's the kind of the village patriarch is at the head and it establishes order in the village. Everybody knows their place. Um, the children learn, Anna Halpern did this once. I was, um, st when I was studying with Anna, she had a teacher from British Guyana, which is a combination of a Caribbean and African dance. And, she, and that woman was teaching us about how when a woman gives, um, is in labor, all the women in the village make a circle under her uh, window and kind of do this, this rhythmic, it's undulating dance together. And the little girls are learning this as they grow up. Fast forward to our culture where you get pregnant and you have to take a, a, a class in, in Lama's breathing and suddenly learn how to breathe. They, don't, they grow up doing this, so they're really prepared. So there was another one, Margaret Mead was studying with my teacher, Ermgard Bartenya, and we saw a film of a, of a man in Bali teaching his son. The son was sitting on the man's lap, facing forward, and the man's father's hands were behind the son, kind of gu guiding the son as he's teaching him these dances. And Margaret Mead was talking that this is transmission of culture. So we learn these forms really through dance, through culture, through, um, but they go back to some of these very ancient, like the spiral and the circle that go through many, many cultures and much of what we've lost today. And we walk in straight lines, we sit in, you know, right angles, we etc., etc., etc. So we've lost the livingness of enacting these forms. There was a young man who showed up here last week for one of our new school conversations. He introduced himself. He said he'd come down here to come to this new school conversation and perhaps something else, but he came here specifically because he was, I think, farming up on a peninsula in Alaska, but he was doing something in Alaska and he would listen to the New School podcasts, and they had a profound effect on him. And so I always think, because we have people all over the world who are listening to these conversations, and I always think to myself, so suppose this young man um, in Alaska, uh, perhaps uh, far away from other resources, wanted to begin to explore his own capacity to learn from movement and dance. And suppose he is sitting with us now. Uh, 
how, what would you suggest to him? Where could he start? How, how might he best do this with no background in this? That's another one of your questions, Michael. I'm not prepared. But that's never stopped me before, so let me jump in. Um, you know, on the one hand, there's the American Dance Therapy Association. There are websites to get information from, and you can just Google dance therapy. There is American, and then different countries. Now it's spreading to different countries, and I'm sure it's in Alaska. It's kind of all over the world. And we, the, the next conference is coming up in October in New York, and we have an international panel, and we have representatives from Latvia and all over the place where it's growing. That, on the one hand, is the professional side. If you want to talk about it personally, I mean, there's so much we could do. There's attention to ergonomics. Once you start being sensitized to your body, the way you sit, the way you move, the way you meet a new person are all part of just, just understanding the language of movement. So, so many things do that. I mean, they're all starting places. Whatever's local, a yoga class is wonderful. Uh, um, I, you know, as a lifelong learner, I think. And, you know, now they're doing Zumba in the exercise studios and things. So I think anywhere but is suppose, a good But suppose, suppose, uh, let me just, so I have a practice. I, so I've done yoga and Tai Chi. And, um, but I have a kind of a, I guess what I call it is a wild Tai Chi practice, which I started before I ever did Tai Chi which was just standing and moving my body, you know, the, just in ways that didn't follow the forms. Mm -hmm. But it was just this way that I found soothing uh, of just moving, right? And so um, imagine that he isn't interested in going to a website or something, <laughs> but he just wants to explore moving that he wants to discover something that he didn't know by the end of this podcast about how in his life right now he might find what you describe dance or movement therapy as, you say dance or movement is an intense form of living and so, some words like that, that, that it, it, it brings that here in this Western culture where as you said, in Bali, the children learn movement from an early age. And we have gym classes or aerobics and stuff like that. But we don't connect. Uh, and if we do connect, it's through yoga or tai chi or some other formula of how you're supposed to move. But suppose one wants to begin to connect with the natural impulse to explore one's being through spontaneous movement. How, how can I do that better? How could he do that better? Fantastic. And you threatened to be spontaneous in this. So I did. I will, I will come back with something. Good. So I just want to highlight a couple words you use that I'll build on discovery right. process. Right. I think that's the key discovery process. So mm -hmm. let me just say a little bit about it. We, we, we have so many habitual ways by the way, in dance therapy, ballet dancers coming in dancing like ballet dancers. And what we try to do is peel away the layers of um, trained, 
um, assumed movements, this is who I am, or I'm a perfectionist in this, and try to find something more authentic or mm -hmm. deeper or more real. So if we want to start where we are now, I'll just say, stay exactly where you are. If you would like to join a little experiment, just close your eyes for a minute. Nothing special, don't even have to do anything. And just notice your breath. As your breath travels through your body, just notice if there's any places that feel a little stuck. And begin to explore ways to send the breath there to begin to release them. And it might mean uncrossing a leg. It might mean beginning to stretch. Let the breath guide you. Again, there's absolutely no right way to do this. This is a discovery process. Just learn about your body. Where does it want to go? What makes it more comfortable? What's it wanting to do at this moment? I'll talk as you're doing it. Continue. Sometimes adding an image gives another dimension, so you might imagine a little ball of energy, a little blue or yellow ball rolling around with your breath, just opening up different areas of the body, moving joints, exploring what's wanting to move. Let that guide you as it moves around inside you. For some people, it might have a sound. find weight is added to it. It's actually moving your weight around. You might sense the chair and the way your weight is shifting or distributed on the chair and use you might use that even more intentionally as you work against the stability of the chair. That becomes your grounding. And it allows you to move a little more freely as you feel the supports, either feet on the floor or the chair, sometimes gives you more freedom. And begin to play with the chair and what it allows you to do and explore. 
might try letting your body move in ways it's not used to, exploring new ways of turning. you might as you're doing this, if there's a piece of what you're doing that seems to speak to you most, seems most interesting, you might stay with that little piece of movement and begin to repeat it and try to find its essence. What is this movement telling you? What's it saying? How's it unfolding? Does it remind you of anything? You can dialogue with it, you can say, who are you, what are you? What are you here to teach me? What part of you, of me are you? It's like deepening or amplifying this movement image. And then you can also begin to find a natural ending to this little story, find a way to bring a conclusion into it. And keep your eyes closed, if you would, for a second. And just feel the traces of the movement as you slow it and slow it and make it more internal. There's still internal movements that carry some of the echoes and the shapes of and just feel in your muscle memory what journey you just took in movement. And as you come back to a neutral baseline of just weight in the chair, upright spine, feet on the earth, just take a moment and reflect on the meaning of this movement you did, if it reminds you of anything, speaks to you of anything. And if there's a kind of an aha, got it moment, that you might feel that in your body as a bodily felt recognition of, yes, that's it. And just stay with the whatever the it was. And check back against this body sensation to ask yourself, is this true for me? until you really feel like, yeah, that's it. And we might, after that, take some time and do some writing or drawing, or, but the words and the drawings that would come after such an experience would be quite different than those that were done before a movement experience. Thank you. That was wonderful. Just wonderful. So I imagine that when people look back on our conversation today, they will remember this practice in a way that may be more vivid than anything we say to each other. Which is, of course, the point. Even in Alaska, they Right, right. Yeah, in Alaska, they Yeah. Uh, this reminded me, there's a place in one of your articles, I think it may well be the one on uh, root images of healing and, uh, and dance therapy, um, 
there's a place where when you're talking about the shamanic dimension, uh, this dance is a shamanistic practice, um, and um, you talk about um, how the the shamans needed to differentiate uh, between um, uh, different uh, forms of illness and some scholar named Clements described the differentiate five causes, soul loss, breach of taboo, disease sorcery, object intrusion. Uh, the shaman told his patient to eat five pebbles, you know, or whatever, and spirit intrusion. The, spirit, the shaman must detect the spirit's identity through its voice. And the shaman needs to carefully differentiate the various causes of illness because the treatment would be very specific to the kind of illness. When dance therapists listen to the verbal or nonverbal communication of people possessed by illness, when they dance with and dance out depictions of illness, they can be seen as acting out sickness. Uh, uh, and you use, again, this... You speak before of Laban, Laban, L-A-B-A-N, Laban. And I'd like to come back to who Laban is, but... Um, my question is, uh, what are the, in your experience, what are the equivalent of the shamanic categories of disease? In other words, when you begin to work with someone, do you have a set of categories of, that are equivalent to the shamanic categories of different root issues? You know, I'm thinking of... Goethe's line that there's something like only 37 tragic situations. I forget what it is. But do you have a archetypal list of um, things that you watch for that enable you to differentiate what might be helpful or how you might approach something? A wonderful question, Michael. I'm, I'm thinking about how to answer it. I mean, in that paper, I also talk about, so I'll, I'll talk about Laban now. But let me just tell you my first association mm -hmm. to your question, which is on the way to an answer. Mm -hmm. I once saw a wonderful film. I think it was Joseph Campbell mm -hmm. film. He, it was a split screen. And on one side, he had um, paintings done by hospitalized psych psychotic schizophrenic patients. We, we don't say schizophrenic, people living with schizophrenia on one side and on another side he had a, um, a group of paintings that were done by sort of early primitive peoples and they were amazingly similar kind of across the screen as he went down mm. so partly I, I've been doing the same thing with movement so um, certain movements that we see and so these are the, that I wrote about and I'll explain a little bit about this movement notation system, Laban. So one is like flicking. If you get a, a group together, and these can be hospitalized people, normal people, often the movement will, people will do this. You'll do sort of movement games like just go around the circle, everybody inventing a different warm-up, or how do you need... Something like this will pretty much come out. Well, flicking and shamanic dance is one way to get rid of evil spirits. Mm-hmm. 
And it's a little like smudging or some of those other forms. So for listeners, you're taking your hands and flicking away, yeah. flicking away yeah. from yourself. And, and we may in a circle, and this happens unbelievably spontaneously in most circles. People will say, I'm getting rid of bad karma or I'm leaving my week behind. It's like a cleaning process. A cleansing. And it's one thing to say... I'm imaging leaving my week behind or getting mm. rid of yeah. toxins. It's another thing to actually do it. Right. So it's a doing right. meaning, right. meaning making. It shows up in shamanic dances. Right. So it's really that kind of correspondence mm -hmm. we look for. What I look for in terms of stuckness, well, I look for health and I look for stuckness. Mm. So there's one way, and again, this is a Laban thing, but it, you don't want it to be too behavioral. What we would all like is a basically a fairly big repertoire of movements. We want to be able to reach out into space. We want to be able to have our feet on the earth when we need to. We want to be able to be fairly direct if we need to. We want to be indirect if we need to. So certain people, some of us, will get stuck more on one end of a continuum. If I'm always, I work a lot with women's groups, and women sort of tend to be more indirect. Would you mind, would, if I can be of help, can't, and to say, please open the door, is really hard for most women. <laughs> or even to do a gesture. We did this nonverbal communication, and men tend to be sort of symmetrical, especially in the West. Women tend to, whether it's from wearing skirts or training, twist or cross ankles or something like this. So what we want really, I think, is access to as many dimensions as possible, ways of being, ways of moving, and you can kind of see where people may be stuck. So that's kind of where I look for in a very, first, a, gen a general sense of... So when you look at me, where do I look stuck? <laughs> well, I can, I, first of all, I can only see... No, but I mean, we had lunch together. Ah. So you've, you've seen me, so... You promised me you wouldn't ask Yeah, yeah, so where do I look stuck? I'm just curious. Yeah. see a whole lot. Mm. I saw, and now I kind of peeked when you were doing the movement. I was going to say, for a man, mm -hmm. you're, you're quite um, moving side That's to side. That's because I'm a DES son. G. And DES son was an endocrine disrupting chemical that my mother took to avoid abortion, but it was estrogenic. Oh. So I have a very large feminine dimension to my personality. <laughs> so. Well, you do. I told you about the study we did with a the only man who disrupted our study was Lebanese and from the east, and mm -hmm. kind of sat a little more. Right, right. But um, right. You know, so you did. You, you tended to I do, do more indeed. sort of spiral movements and things, yeah. which are unusual. Yeah. I, I haven't seen you have a chance to do the, and this was really important for the breast cancer work. Mm -hmm. But there's so many factors. I mean, women. I, the, the group I was working most with was early diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So they were getting mastectomies and things as the group were going. And so naturally you want to protect. So, so we look at movement, we, I, mm -hmm. speak for, on a continuum. Mm -hmm. And most movement tends, like yoga, tends to play, take place in a series of opposites or polarities. Or movement mm -hmm. archetypes mm -hmm. tend to go from growing, shrinking, for example. Irmgard Bartenev, my teacher, would say, she had a German accent, I wish I could do it, shrinking. 
So flowers in the morning, open and closing, some say that. And this is a very basic form of all organic movement. Mm-hmm. Just, and it tends to the center of gravity mm-hmm. of the body is mm-hmm. there. Babies do this before mm-hmm. they develop fine motor skills, the first gross motor. Developmentally, these are the things that we mm-hmm. develop. So what we try to do is embed the experience along the continuum and then help people find the whole continuum. So if somebody's tending to go in, Mm -hmm. you might say feel that and allow it. Mm -hmm. But if you follow it all the way in, like a figure of eight, which most movement is, it tends to go into the opposite and then go back out. So you don't try to make it go out or you don't try to freeze it somewhere, but you give somebody a vocabulary or a structure that will let them explore dimension and you find the particular dimension along which that issue lives so many of us have some traumatized area of our body absolutely and so if one found that one might start if spontaneously some movement of protection or whatever it is that repeating that at some point it you know, you may go all the way in, but at some point it begins to move back out. You do that as a practice, and then you may pause, you may take some notes, you may draw. That's right. Uh, you may draw the body or draw and see what images are evoked mm-hmm. and move between the writing and the drawing and the, uh, the movements. Well, yeah. um, t- two things I was going to say. So for, for those women who... And I see this a little bit in your upper, but it's because of the lower, um, a little bit protected. Mm -hmm. You might just begin to explore. But see, it involves the the rotation of the shoulders, Mm -hmm. all of that, and just see what that feels like. Mm -hmm. That's right. So one can work into, okay, where are the traumas that... I'm just using myself as an example. But we can work into where are the traumas Mm -hmm. that we feel... What are the movements that express moving in and out of them? And then reflect on, well, what characterological dimensions of our personalities reflect that? I ask a series of questions in this kinesthetic imagining. I think maybe I gave you that. Mm -hmm. So this is kinesthetic imagining, which Mm -hmm. is letting the body speak. Mm -hmm. Um, And then understanding, I call it action hermeneutics, Mm -hmm. because in normal Western Mm -hmm. Movement. We move and then we stop and reflect. But in, in many ways, movement actually is the meaning-making. Mm-hmm. As you move, meaning becomes more amplified. Mm-hmm. It becomes clearer, mm-hmm. more, more dimensions to it. So um, it's not action separated from meaning-making. And, um, and asking a set of questions after the fact is often... And Hillman, James Hillman does this with dream images... If you personify it, who would you be if you were somebody in my life? Or you could dialogue with it. Mm-hmm. Are you here to teach me something? Or So again, it's, it's an image like other images. It's just a kinesthetic image. Mm-hmm. But you work with it just like you do any other images. Mm-hmm. And in the... Um, I love to think of... I, uh, I'm looking at Kira who has a dog, and I was telling her about my cats and my 25-year-old. I've had cats my whole life, and they are, um, although I grew up with a dog, mysterious, amazing creatures. And I study the way they move, because to jump up, first they gather, crouch down, mm-hmm. and then comes the jump. Mm-hmm. So I like the metaphor of we go down in order to go up. Mm-hmm. 
or in most movement or in ballet, you're thinking your, your, your back surface is going down while your front surface is coming up and vice versa, mm -hmm. and that's how you stay poised if you're mm -hmm. doing jumps. I wonder if you've thought about this. I imagine you have. But when I think about how impoverished our movement vocabulary is in the West, deeply impoverished, and therefore our relationship to our intuition, that whole dimension of our being, um, and you think of, well, what are the remaining things? Well, obviously we go do aerobic exercise or we, you know, maybe if we're lucky we dig in a garden or we do something like that. But um, one expression of movement that, most people live through is the experience of making love. And people have said that when you make love, you really can't disguise who you are. You know, that that's something you can't disguise. And yet one sees in ways of making love very clear archetypal patterns of relatedness come out. You know, different sort of symbolic languages of relationship between the two people. Um, so there's a combination in making love of, of archetypal expressions, but also of being unable to disguise who we truly are. So I wondered whether you had ever thought of the relationship of that to movement and dance. I mean, has that ever crossed your mind as something to um, uh, reflect on how one would interpret the dance of love in relationship to movement or dance therapy. What a great business. We should start go. a consulting company. <laughs> <Right, right. laughs> yes, I do all the time, but my husband may be listening, so okay. I'm going to be very careful right. about what I say now. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think the best lovers are um, aware of their bodies. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, I've had this never mind, discussion with, you, you can touch somebody, you can touch, I'll call it clinically, a good mm -hmm. massage therapist mm -hmm. doesn't touch erotically, mm -hmm. it's the, you can feel the intention through the mm -hmm. touch. So number one, a good lover, the, the, the touch should communicate love. Mm -hmm. um, there's also something, and uh, who is it, the French... I'm losing my mind too. That's fine. The, um, we're, we're losing French our minds at the same speed. Who says, uh, um, "I see you seeing me. I feel you feeling me." Um, mm. Is it Derrida or Lacan? I think. I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. So, so a t in a touch, you should feel the toucher touching you, feeling that he or she is touching you, mm -hmm. and he or she should feel you feeling him or her touching mm -hmm. you. So there's that transaction happening mm -hmm. between mm -hmm. and it hardly matters what part of the body mm -hmm. but but it's the kind of communication mm -hmm. and I think most of us develop that sensitivity through we're not trained that way mm -hmm. we're not taught in school so it's the impoverishment mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. the um, somatic education mm -hmm. for all of us and you know you mentioned exercise studios and not mm. to put them down they're very important but mm -hmm. they can be pretty mechanistic which is just you know and I wonder how you know. good that really is for human health yeah. I mean when you really think of you know what forms of movement would actually most strengthen and create resilience if you were going to do something for an hour a day or whatever would you really go pump on a bicycle and stuff like that? Or would you have 
a practice that was a form of informed, free, guided movement that was self-exploratory. I mean, look at Anna Halpern. She's 98 years old or whatever. She, I don't think she's been pumping bikes for a long time. But she has been moving all her life. And do you know that maybe two years ago she fell, broke her mm-hmm. pelvis and hip, I think? Mm-hmm. It's back up and teaching dance again mm-hmm. at 92. Probably, but, but so there's so many problems to point at. Mm-hmm. You know, one of it is our Western associate idea of body image. Mm-hmm. So for many people, when you start sitting or doing sitting practice, you're encouraged to have a tummy. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a very bad thing. You know, mm-hmm. we want tight stomach muscles mm-hmm. and we want ripped bodies. Mm-hmm. Well, pumping a bike will give you that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a, a lot of us are so... Um, Effect influenced mm-hmm. by these cultural, especially, you know, mm-hmm. people looking for mates when they're young mm-hmm. and wanting to be mm-hmm. so. So it, it keeps you in a certain system that reinforces itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but speaking of Anna, mm-hmm. you, plenty of others, look great mm-hmm. not having that. But, mm-hmm. it, you know, you've, you've already stepped outside a whole set of cultural mm-hmm. assumptions mm-hmm. when you do that. But the answer is... Um, so funny, I, I used to be the assistant director of the Golden Door. Mm-hmm. Do you know that health? I know it well. You do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I wrote the first chapter of my dissertation. It was called Behold, Behind the Golden Door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I sneaked stories every day of, mm-hmm. of... And the men would come in, but these are other stories, and smuggle in bottles of champagne and sit in the hot tub. And the women would come in, and they were... measuring quarters of inches and they had all kinds, they had to look like this. And then of course as the counselor or therapist I was told we weren't doing therapy but they would confess things like if I don't lose three pounds by the end of the week my husband's going to leave me. I'm very determined. This is a high priority accomplishment I have to have Mm -hmm. because there's a lot at stake here for me. So um, you don't want to tell them you're undoing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's about the materialism of the body mm-hmm. in this culture and the commodification and all that, and it mm-hmm. plays into so many other aspects mm-hmm. of how we live our daily lives. So in, in so many of the traditions, we've talked about all the traditional forms of dance, movement, and so forth. The community is being taught to move in certain archetypal ways or in yoga or tai chi. Mm-hmm. So there's a contrast between that and free expressive movement. Absolutely. And where in the traditional societies which used these archetypal patterns to teach uh, children and teach, was there a place for fl- free expressive movement as there is in, dan- in certain forms of dance therapy today or movement therapy today? In other words, was, does it have a natural place in indigenous uh, cultures that you're aware of? I think it, it was not, um, it, it was never not there. Okay. It reminds me of a film. I once had this amazing opportunity. I was, um, I got, I rode in a bus of Australian Aborigines for mm-hmm. a couple of days. They were in New York performing at Battery mm-hmm. Park, some mm-hmm. of their native dances. And their dances, they didn't own anything, but their dances were considered property of the tribe. 
and they were doing their dances in Battery Park. And they showed a film of, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the sand painting that they do, the dots? Mm -hmm. So I was just thinking, how amazing. Here it is morning, and you wake up, and there's a family under a tree. And the father kind of wakes up, and then he reaches for his paintbrushes, and he starts painting. And the children run down and play in the water. And maybe the wife is starting to cook breakfast. And I'm thinking, he doesn't get in a car and go to an office and remove himself from the family and sit at a desk. And the children don't go to school and preschool and, you know, play soccer. Um, and it was all so flowing. And everybody was moving in and out all day long. And they all had personal space and communal space. And it just it made me so homesick. <laughs> Mm. nostalgic nice. for a time none of us knew yeah. give you a, a, a situation uh, you've done a lot of work with women with, with cancer and you've done this uh, new DVD that you've given us on dance movement therapy for women with breast cancer so imagine that um, uh, you uh, are working with a, a young woman with metastatic breast cancer and her husband and let us say they have two children and uh, they are very she just recently been re-diagnosed with the metastasis and they are understandably profoundly traumatized by what the prospects are how would you approach working with the whole family in terms of of movement or dance what what and imagine again a family that's off somewhere where they don't have access to movement therapists or so on. You're, you're helping them design. Uh, you're spending a little time with them. You've just met them, but you're offering them what you can in a few minutes of how they might work with the grief, the fear, the anxiety, um, and but also the potential that she may live a long time with this situation. Uh, uh, and uh, so you want to both reinforce resilience and authentic hope, and you also want to help them deal with the anxiety and the grief. How would you do that? That's great. I, I didn't have the chance to work directly with the families, but kind of spontaneously with a number of, mm -hmm. of people in the group would come back and tell me that they would start dancing with their families and mm -hmm. their children. Mm -hmm. um, so I imagine that it was uh, in a way that was already comfortable for them. Mm -hmm. One, I think, was after dinner, they would push back the chairs. Um, it was for a couple of reasons. I think that with the, the diagnosis of cancer, there's a sort of, um, like it's contagious. You don't want to touch someone mm -hmm. or be, and people often recoil when they have it, mm -hmm. that they feel kind of like it's leprosy. Um, and children don't know whether to touch mm -hmm. or not touch. So there's a whole awkwardness that comes mm -hmm. around touching. Um, so, first of all, just the ability to play again, to kind of run around the kitchen table, mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. very liberating mm -hmm. and took away a lot of the fear of who is this, suddenly this patient, this was my mother, now it's a patient. Mm -hmm. Strange shift. So, on, on that one level, just restoring some of the natural kind of play and, mm -hmm. and uh, ease in a family and helping them find their own ways of doing it. You know, is it playing in the park? Mm -hmm. Is it making up games? Is it... And, and all that was, was coming mm -hmm. spontaneously. Mm -hmm. What else? 
So you've established for them that yeah. recovering the capacity to play is really useful. But what else would you offer them as a way of working by themselves or as a family? What would you suggest to them? Well, the other, one of the other things that struck me in your question was grieving and loss. And of mm -hmm. course, it's not all happy play. Mm -hmm. And I'm torn between suggesting any structure for that mm -hmm. and, and ways to have open-ended, kind mm -hmm. of open-ended structures that people can do. I think with grieving and loss, it's the same thing. People are very um, un uncertain about whether to touch or not touch. Um, in many healing circles, though, actually just putting on quiet or sad music and, and arms around each other in a circle and swaying is, is the most, um, it's a very basic comforting kind of a thing. Um, I was just going to say something about the movement of rocking. One of the women I worked with who was freaked out not so much by the procedures but by the depersonalization of she was describing being in machines with bright lights and it was like she said being on an acid trip but and then coming back to her body after the radiation or something was the problem. She was losing her cars and the, and the par uh, keys for the car and just couldn't get back to her body again, grounded. And we developed, um, and she would actually do this in the waiting room, just a very simple, just asking her what was comforting. And it was a kind of a rocking. She would sit on the floor and rock. And, and um, that movement is, is very universal and, uh, and helps people when they're feeling too vulnerable out here in space. And the same thing with a group, sort of cradle-like rocking. A lot of times in grief, you don't want words. People don't know what to say, but somehow sharing mm -hmm. the feeling of the moment is, is enough. Mm -hmm. And helping people find ways to just share and be with each other without necessarily words, I think, is really important. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, uh, working with James Hillman, the father of archetypal psychology, which is one of the three great lineages that came out of Jungian psychology. And Hillman, as you know, famously distinguishes between the body, the soul, and the spirit. And how, you know, usually in the West, we think physical, emotional, mental, spiritual well-being. We don't distinguish between soul and spirit, but in the traditions, it's a critical distinction because the soul is the soft, moist part of us that stays very close to bodily experience, and the spirit goes soaring up into ideals and abstractions of how we should be and so on. And so Hillman's whole point is that we're too spirit-focused, we're all trying to be high and spiritual and wonderful, and we're not listening to the dark, moist aspect of ourself, which is the soul, which moves slowly on body time and experiences all the different sub-personalities of our being, to be very brief. So in your own work, um, do you reflect on practices that strengthen or address or work with these different facets of being human in terms of archetypal psychology of the body, the soul, and the spirit. I do, Michael, and it's complicated because, um, because on the one hand, we try to integrate them or bring them together and say they're the same, but they're not the same, but they're not separate either. Um, 
so quickly, I actually take Hillman, uh, issue with James Hillman on mm -hmm. this, and um, his essay on Peaks and Vales mm -hmm. was really about that. It's wonderful for describing a certain kind of Western separation. Mm -hmm. um, but two yes buts to that. Mm -hmm. One is um, Jacob Needleman was giving a lecture to us when we were students with him. And the, some, philosopher, Jacob the philosopher Jacob Needleman. Mm -hmm. Jacob Needleman and said... Um, uh, that that doesn't feel good to us. You know, we don't want to be in a psychology that leaves out the spirit, and that's not what spirit feels like to us, and so forth. And Jacob, so this is very personal, looked at me and he said, go see my friend Rabbi Jack Bemperad. Mm -hmm. uh, it took me a year to get mm -hmm. back inside a mm -hmm. temple, but I did. And mm -hmm. this amazing rabbi was very wise. Um, and And it's not in Judaism either, but... It's more of, of a women, um, a, a, a feminist the, mm -hmm. theology that says um, spirit for women is down and through the body. So you know um, um, Descent to the Goddess, Sylvia uh, Pereira is a Jungian analyst mm -hmm. who, based on the myth of Inanna, who goes down, it's like the seven gates of hell, mm -hmm. gets dismembered at each point, and then... Reshkigal comes in, puts her, and then reemerges back more whole than when she went down. Mm -hmm. And that this is a woman's spirituality goes down and through the body, mm -hmm. not necessarily up. So it is a very, I mean, even the question comes from a particular point of view, which tends to be phallocentric. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so a, a number of women, uh, and I'm taking a wonderful training now, right now, mm -hmm. in, and I'm going to mention her name, Rabbi Diane Elliott, who was a dancer, and 15 of us women mm -hmm. study with a rabbi, and it's all through movement, mm, because that's so missing in Judaism, the feminine, the body, and spirit through the body. So, so let me see if I can work back through that to make sure I understand. Were you saying, and I agree, if, or it seems to me to be an extraordinarily legitimate criticism of James Hillman's soul-centered psychology that he ignores spirit. Is that, is that part of I what? I agree. Okay. Yes. And so were you saying uh, that um, that was Needleman's critique of Hillman, that... No, he wasn't critiquing Hillman. His his um, his talk was just so integrative of both. So he, but he was saying you want to include spirit. Did, did I hear that right or not? He just pointed me to a rabbi. I wasn't sure okay. why. Okay. But right. that turned out to be a key part of my okay. sense of integrating these. Okay. So are you saying that the distinction between soul and spirit is a for want of a better word, patriarchal or male-centered distinction from the point of view of feminist psychology? Or are you saying uh, that the distinction's okay, but women's spirituality expresses through the body? I just want to understand what right, you're saying. thanks. Um, good questions. But I, I would hesitate to be absolutist in either okay. one of those right. ways. Okay. Um, I just think that the question speaks about, always comes from a perspective itself. Right. So the question tells me more about the questioner mm -hmm. 
than about the, um, the you know, than the, the accuracy of okay. what he's saying. Mm -hmm. And I prefer to take a different perspective. It doesn't mean they're the same. Spirit you prefer to take the perspective that what? Well, it doesn't mean that spirit and soul are not different or that they're the same. Okay. There are times when spirit does go up, okay. I think. Okay. But I don't want to kind of fix things into these categories. I see what you're beginning. I'm beginning to get it. So what you're saying is that spirit doesn't necessarily go up. That's right. It can also express Thank you. That's down right. through the body. Right. And that this may be a more feminine experience. Correct. Okay, that's really helpful. That's really helpful. Certainly women talk about this in childbirth mm -hmm. and so forth. Mm -hmm. It can be a very spiritual experience and mm -hmm. they're not leaving their bodies. Right. Mm -hmm. Really helpful. I would like to open this up to our audience of very thoughtful people for comments and questions. Please uh, say your name and try to be succinct in the question. And I welcome Don. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to follow up on what you two were just saying there because um, from where I've been going and what I've been reading and thinking about, it seems like the spirit, soul, body thing is more of a, a integrated continuum of the way in which we experience being alive and like we we humans especially in the west have a well maybe in the east too have a we like to categorize things and have things in different cubby holes and and it's been seeming to me more and more that you know things don't fit that well as we wish they did, and 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 so well then then there's this um, thing that's happening with uh, brain studies where the, the brain um, the, isn't just in the head like the brain is distributed through the spinal cord and then it's all connected to the endocrine system and you can have gut feelings and all kinds of somatic responses to um, what's happening to you um, that manifest through physical reactions. So like it's all stirred up together and, and um, I don't know where I'm going with this except to say I think the uh, argument between whether spirit or soul is more important is kind of moot because it's all part of the same Mm -hmm. organic process. That's a really good question. How would you respond? Oh, I didn't I realize it was a question. I, I think it was a comment. Is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a comment on the comment? I think it's, it's exactly right. I'm glad you used the word organic, mm -hmm. and I know that that characterizes a lot of things here. In an organic living process, things don't show up in categories. I mean, that's a helpful way for us to um, isolate aspects of experience and give names to them. But they're not real. They're made up constructs that help us mm -hmm. identify and speak to each other about experience. But we forget that we made them up in an organic, and here's where movement comes in, because life is constantly moving, changing, shifting. We can't kind of live in a world that's that moving, changing, shifting. We have to talk and freeze things in time and identify things and try to... But we need to remember that we made up a lot of this. So I like the use of the word organic when you speak, because I think so. Jan. 
So I, I bring that earlier. I'm Jan, by the, the, the Commonwealth family. And I, I just want to follow right in Don's footsteps and, and follow right on that last exchange between the two of you, which I found really fascinating. And, and, um, and, I, and it's not the first time in this interview that you've eluded the, the um, invitation to apply categories. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm thinking back to the 37 kinds of trauma and, and whether you see a kind of vocabulary in the way that people present um, that, that fits different kinds of, of trauma expressed mm -hmm. through body gestures or behaviors. And, and there again, you, you, you kind of went at it in a, different, in a different way. And I felt like in that last exchange, I, I, I just, I, I, I'm just going to try this out. I, I made what seemed to me like a discovery about you, which Don just identified, that you, you don't, and, and you reinforced, that, that you don't really think or, or work in terms of categories. I don't. I find I, I find that constricting. You work from something, some other base. I do. And so help help me with the question, because my question really is, what's your base? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> 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 it's a lifelong discovery process. It's true. I don't know. It's very fluid. Um, I'm a keen observer, so I notice lots of shifts and things. I just tend not to sort of group them. I find. All the studies I've done of categories, psychiatric categories, is helpful because it kind of trains you to see clusters and likely associations with certain qualities and certain diagnoses and so forth. But in the moment, I keep, they sort of float in the back of my mind as I'm in a moment. But they're not in the front of my mind, whatever is there. So to go back yeah. to that wonderful exercise that you had us do. Yeah. I think there was a, a point in that where you invited us to to observe patterns. Mm -hmm. So there, are patterns, patterns are in there. Well, a pattern like a, I mean, there are these universal patterns that are recognizable, which are also helpful. A lot of times in a movement, and, pro and I was going to do one if we have time. You know, we can actually make a spiral dance and. It does tend to evoke certain kinds of experiential states of being. Um, we'll save But that. then I might just sort of use it in a moment. I don't necessarily say at 4 o'clock we're all going to, you know, become a spiral. It's just not who I am particularly. So. We're going to save time to do that at the end. So we're going to do that when we've had some break. 10 or 15 minutes. So thank you for your question because I don't know. It's fluid, whatever it is. Other questions? Yes. Just a comment that I think part of the problem is you were saying, you know, the categories and all that. Part of why we have them is order is in order to communicate with others, because these are these sort of ideas and, and experience more important not ideas but experiences which are hard to articulate. And so part of the problem is if I say, well, if that isn't your base, what is your base? The only way you can answer that is to create a category and a terminology, and that's the thing you're trying to avoid. So I think, but but it means that you can't then communicate in this verbal shorthand the experience, which can be a limitation. I mean, not a limitation, but hard to then communicate. I'll go further than that. Somehow, I have this feeling in my life that I 
I need to be a translator. It's the Hermes thing, you know, the hermetics. And so I have one foot in a very traditional psychological association world. And, oh, okay, I have another story then. I'll tell it through stories, which is the... Um, so I was in a nursing home, and I set myself a challenge, because I'm a very out-of-the-box person, and I've just been with Anna Halpin, and I'm working in a nursing home in Cape Cod, where everybody wears little blue suits with gold buttons or something, and the social work staff and the nursing staff are very exact about everything, and the process notes you do before and after have to look right. And in my mind, I'm saying, if I can pass, then I'm a good clinician. They'll trust me, they'll believe me. I know the work is good, but I have to pass. So I bought little blue suits and things, and then, <laughs> which I threw away as soon as I came back to California. And um, they're calling me because there's a, um, a lady screaming in one of the rooms, and she's, I look in the room and what do I see? I see a, a little lady in a bed, and this was, I think, one of the ones in receivership. So the first thing I notice is that it's very impoverished. There's nothing in the room, it's pretty bare, no pictures on the walls, no really nothing. All I see is this bed, hospital bed, and this sort of frail little lady with a feeding tray in front of her. And there's um, orange juice on the walls. And what's happened is that she's taken this little paper cup of orange juice and she keeps throwing it all over the walls. And they want me to fix this. So, um, and the, so what do I notice? The orange juice cup is old and it's been scotch taped many times. It's a cup. It had orange juice in it. It's not an orange juice cup. I noticed that it's an old cup. It's been scotch taped many times, and it's got some words on it. I think, well, that's interesting. I asked her to tell me about the cup. And then she starts crying. I start crying when I tell the story. Turns out that she had over many, she had one visitor, a young girl who lived down the road, and on the way to visit her, she used to visit her in the nursing home, she passed a dairy in the countryside, and she would bring her ice cream in those cups. And then that young girl had gone, moved away or gone off to college or something, and she kept this cup. And this was like all she owned in the world. And the nursing staff was using it for orange juice and wanted to throw it away or something. They had no idea what it meant to her. So then, and as soon as she told me the story about the meaning of it, she calmed down. So then my job is to say, what do I say to the nursing staff? Now, I can't talk about ritual and ceremony and sacred objects and, you know, <laughs> Cape Cod. <laughs> so it's all a question of translation. So that's the fluidity. I mean, I'm always, so I say something simple like, it meant a lot to her. It was given to her by somebody she cared about who's no longer around. So it would be very helpful if you just made sure she had that cup all the time and, you know, that it was right. I, I saw her feeding tray as a little ritual altar. And this cup was the, really the only thing on it. And that's, her life had shrunk to this. So it's a constant process of translating for me to figure out what world am I in. How do I take what I'm experiencing, you know, back and forth and so forth? So that's sort of how I try to manage that. Other questions? Oh, I have a question. Yeah. Um, so, um, in doing 
movement work, sort of like what you described, I, I have had the experience of uh, doing movement and then doing drawings, and then you partner up with somebody, and you look at their drawing, and you dance their drawing, mm -hmm. and they say, you got me perfectly. Sounds and, like Doria Halpern? Well, or a student, a Tamalka student. Right. And, you know, I say, well, you know, how could that be? What, what's going on that that could actually happen? Oh, you're asking me that question? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like I can't believe it. It's hard to believe. It, well, when it first started to happen doing movement work, it was hard to believe. And I said, well, that's a great accident. Mm -hmm. But then it happened too often for me to think it was an accident. Mm -hmm. So it, obviously something is going on here. That they danced your drawing, they danced, wait a second, they got you, they got you exactly by dancing your drawing? Yeah. Or well, the meaning of the drawing. Mm -hmm. They've never seen this drawing before. They look at it for a minute and they do it and they dance. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you look at them and you say, yes, you understand my drawing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, it doesn't it's surprise very, me. <laughs> well, it's, some, it's sort of mysterious, though. <laughs> I, I think, oh God, I think the brain is, you know, we, we hardly understand how we make meaning out of life. And I think we're registering, as somebody said, um, the, uh, you know, in the gut, and we're registering on so many levels. And the gut feeling we get about a drawing tells us more. There's more synapses, I think, serotonin in the gut than there is in the brain. So we're registering on so many levels. And, and I think a drawing or an image affects us. We react bodily to it. And then if we know how to let that be amplified through our bodies, it's another channel. We're really channeling the drawing. Hmm. We're going to close with this movement process. I just want to make sure if there are any other questions. Kara, did you have Oh, you're good? Anybody else? Yes. Oh, go ahead, please. Um, well, I really appreciated your question about the man from Alaska. Uh-huh. Um, I am an aspiring dance therapist, and I live in Inverness, which is kind of a mm -hmm. sheltered, remote community away mm -hmm. from places where I've lived where there's more access to things like dance therapy or dance classes or things that help me with embodiment and transformation. And um, So I have devoted myself in this last mm -hmm. month to the process of actually finding a way to cultivate a skill that I have in a place where there isn't quite access mm -hmm. to um, the education that I feel like I might need. And I guess my question is, I'm searching for a daily practice mm -hmm. that I can have that's because I'm used to being in dance classes where the embodiment kind of comes mm -hmm. more naturally mm -hmm. because there's an engagement with the people around me and it kind of just breathes life, like movement mm -hmm. into my body. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm looking for something that's more uh, solo or mm -hmm. um, that can be done in the comfort of my own home or just in my mm -hmm. own studio that can build some kind of technique or, um, yeah, I guess that's a question. 
Do you want me to say more about it, or are you commenting that you appreciated it? And well, I appreciated that, <laughs> but then I, I'm just interested in um, I guess maybe like a question daily is, practice. Yeah, you're looking for a practice kind of near one. I, I would say this is a great one. It's it's close to what people call authentic movement. I call it kinesthetic imagining. I did it deliberately the way, you know, starting now. Normally, you would kind of get yourself ready for a practice, but I just wanted to emphasize the fact that it can be done anywhere, anytime. You can catch yourself kind of drifting off and enliven yourself again. But as a practice, it should be done probably in a more structured way, and I would say most practices, the beginning should always be make sure your feet are, are firmly on the ground. You know, get your grounding, get your supports first. Usually um, letting the breath guide you because that goes from the authentic movement, the experience of I am moving, ego moving, to I am being moved. But I, I differ from authentic movement in that because I still have the eyes open um, mm -hmm. training, you can start anywhere and it becomes the other. So even if you start with something, so I don't, I don't want to get people to get too precious about it has to be something thing poetic you can start with something silly and again it's the essence of ritual is repetition if you stay with it it begins to change and begins to become yours in a certain way so you can start with even a mechanical exercise and just keep repeating it and letting it develop mm -hmm. so the breath is probably the most authentic and the best way to start but you can start outside in, inside out, but just stay with it, let it develop, and it's like a meditation. As your thoughts go elsewhere, just keep bringing it back to that evolving thing that's happening that you're in. Mm. But just make sure that your feet are on the ground, you don't have, you know, you're not gonna bump into things, take care of your surroundings and so forth, and, and do it, yeah. And actually, I mean, what we didn't do was, was move into space. Mm. And the reason authentic move movement has a witness is to hold the frame so that they'll tell you if you're about to, so that you can really go deeply into it and not worry about bumping into or mm -hmm. hurting yourself. You can also do it by just peeking. You can mm -hmm. sort of come out of the state, go back into the state if you don't have a witness, if you don't, you know. I don't want to get mm -hmm. too hung up about these, these things. Just take mm -hmm. care to, to make sure you're somewhere where you can let yourself go and really move, should that be. Mm -hmm. Eileen Sterling, thank you for being with us at the New School. We're deeply grateful. Michael Lerner, I enjoyed every moment of Wonderful. it. Wonderful. Great. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah.